You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? You know that fine line between what you feel like maybe you should play in worship and not play in worship? Let's just say clipping and, and cutting down a clip from Gladiator is one of those fine lines. How much violence do you want to have in a video right before you start a message? So it's crazy. If you've seen this movie, did you know that Gladiator is 15 years old? That's crazy. So if you know anything about this movie, this movie ended Russell Crowe's drought of winning an Academy Award. There's so many different movies that he should have won it for. The Insider, L.A. Confidential, Cinderella Man, A Beautiful Mind, but this is the movie that somehow ended the Academy Award streak for Russell Crowe. If you know anything about the movie, it's a story of a general, a Roman general uh, named Maximus, and uh, he believes that that uh, he is going to be the next emperor of Rome. In fact, the, the emperor at the time, Marcus Aurelius, tells him that he is going to appoint him as the next emperor of Rome instead of his son, Commodus. Well, as you can imagine, in any kind of drama, Commodus hears about this and decides that he's going to kill his father and tries to kill Maximus. And of course, the rest is cinematic gold. Maximus avoids his death. He gets sold into slavery. He becomes a gladiator. And his hell-bent mission is on seeking revenge for his family. And the movie ends, of course, with him killing Commodus and then him dropping dead. A lot of people said that gladiator is a meta-narrative of our culture. We are a culture that's constantly at this idea of rivalry and vengeance and revenge for things that people have done to us. And that's really going to be the centerpiece of our narrative this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 2. Now, if you haven't been with us, we have been uh, all summer going through this series in 1 and 2 Samuel. We call it a Game of Thrones, and this is why it's called a Game of Thrones. There is murder, (laughs) there is deceit, there are giants, there is moving and swapping of people sitting on the throne, so you can imagine that it fits perfectly with us. So what has been happening in our story? How can we catch you up in what's been going on? Well, God appoints a king named Saul. You know this story. But all of a sudden, Saul is like the biggest goofball that's ever walked the face of the earth. And so God decides that he wants another king instead of Saul. And so the the prophet Samuel appoints a guy named David. Actually, he's a shepherd boy named David to replace the king. You know the great story of David slaying the giant. And so when David slaying the giant, he becomes one of the most popular people in all of the country of Israel. The people love David. And so you can imagine King Saul cannot take this. He becomes so jealous about David that he even comes to the point where he starts to try to kill David. In fact, he throws a spear at David multiple times. And eventually David goes on the run. And that's where we're going to pick up in our story today. David is on the run. Now what happens in the story is that David goes to a place called Nob. You don't need to know it. There's not going to be a test on it later. But it's a significant place because apparently that's where a lot of the priests of God were living at this time. And so David goes there with his mighty men. They give him shelter. They give him food. He needs a sword. And so guess what sword he takes? He takes the sword of Goliath. Just a reminder, the sword that David used to cut off the head of the nine foot, nine inch tall giant. That kind of sword. Like that had to be a huge 
huge sword he was carrying around. And, 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 a, and a spy from Saul goes to, to, to Saul and tells him that David sought refuge and the priest helped David in this time. And so Saul, like the crazy person he is, decides to go to Nob and he commands that his men murdered the priest of God. And the men want nothing to do with it. So Saul has one of his spies kill the priest. And he is hell-bent on finding David. He has taken 3,000 of his men and they are systematically trying to hunt David down. And that's where we're going to pick up in our story in verse 2 of chapter 24. It says, Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to a sheep's pen along the way and the cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. Okay, we just need to stop here for just a second because we've encountered a few kind of awkward moments in the story of 1 Samuel. Y'all remember a couple weeks ago when Saul was like, hey, by the way, if you want to marry my daughter, you need to bring me 100 foreskins. You remember that story, that awkward story? This is another one of those moments. Okay, it tells us that Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. The Bible is telling us that Saul went into the cave to use the restroom. Why does the Bible need to tell us this? Like, what is the significance of the literary moment for the Bible to tell us that this is happening? There are other awkward moments within Scripture. There's another story. Everybody remember the story of Balaam and his talking donkey? There's another story of, of one of the, uh, the judges named Ehud who goes and kills a king. And it says that he kills the king and he stabs him. And the king is so overweight that the, the sword goes and flaps over it and his... His servants don't even know that the sword is walking around with the sword in his side. Why does the Bible need to tell us this type of thing? I have no idea. I don't have the answer for you. But I, it is an awkward moment within Scripture that tells us that Saul is in there using the restroom. Look back at verse 3. It says, It came to a sheep's pen along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. Then the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, You, to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. You've ever heard that phrase, uh, revenge is a dish best served cold? Well, apparently to David's men, revenge is a dish best served when your enemy is using the restroom. Apparently is the text. So imagine this, Saul is in the most vulnerable position he could possibly be in. And David and his men are hiding far back in the cave and they hear Saul coming in. Leave it to your imagination of how they hear Saul coming into the cave. And and so David's men immediately think, this is the moment. This is the moment that this man who has literally been trying to hunt you down, this man who's thrown spears at your head again and again, this man who just murdered the priest of God, this man who has been sending 3,000 of his men to come and kill you, this is the moment where you can take revenge. This is the moment that you can kill him. And according to the book of Leviticus, he would have had every reason to do this. The law of Moses commanded that you could take an eye for an eye, as long as it was in the same way that this person committed against you. So David had every reason to take revenge. Revenge is part of our culture, if you think about it. Think about all the brilliant movies and and books that are all centered around this idea of revenge. Stephen King has has been a genius in writing these. We think about the the movie Carrie. It's all centered on revenge. Secret Window, Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 and Django Unchained, Friday the 13th, Sweeney Todd, Nightmare on Elm Street, Star Trek, Revenge of Khan. It's all on this idea that taking revenge is what we're supposed to do. 
Think about Shakespeare's Hamlet and Macbeth. The Godfather, True Grit, The Scarlet Letter, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Count of Monte Cristo. Think about how much of our culture says to avenge and to take revenge is natural for us to do. And so David has a difficult decision in this moment. He can do what his men are telling him to do, which is to kill the king, the man who's been making his life miserable, the man who's literally just taking a break from trying to find David and to kill him. And so this is the moment. This cat and mouse game would be over. Consider for just a second, if David had killed Saul in this moment, what would have happened? All this would stop. And David would literally become the king of Israel. And so it makes sense for David to do it, doesn't it? And so think about moments in your life. The moments in your life where you have the opportunity to take revenge, to avenge what someone has done to you. Think about it. The torment would stop. That person would get what's coming to them. Karma, right? It's coming back on them. They would be exposed for who they are and what they've done. Victory is yours. But pause just a second. Is that really the kind of life that we want to live? Is that really the person that we want to become? Will we take action into our own hands to avenge what others have done to us? So if that's one option, what's the other option? Look at verse 4. It says, The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with them as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David's conscience was stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. He did what? has this opportunity to end it all and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe? Like That doesn't even make any sense whatsoever. Why would he not end this in this moment? Instead of revenge, what does David choose? He chooses mercy. He chooses mercy. And he reprimands his men as if this didn't make sense to them. You know, guys, Saul's been hunting us down so the best thing for us to do is to show mercy to him. That's what he chooses in this moment. Mercy doesn't make sense. Mercy is the most difficult decision for us to make. The word mercy in scripture literally means to release, to cancel, to let go, to set free. Jesus uses this word synonymous with the word forgiveness and healing in the New Testament. And so when we see that Jesus healed someone, it also uses the word mercy to show forgiveness to this person. So Jesus healed the disease and the sick people. He cured their blindness. He cast out their demons. He has shown mercy and he has healed them. Jesus told a profound parable that, about this idea of mercy. You remember this story where it says this man comes before the king and he has this, this great amount of debt and the king forgives him of all the debt. But then that man walks outside and runs into a friend who owed him one day's worth of wages and he has that man thrown in prison. Mercy doesn't make sense. Mercy stinks if we really think about it. Think about the many ways that people have hurt us in our life. Think about the people who have made your life a living hell. The people that have stabbed you in the back. The people who have conspired against you. The people who made sure that you were uh, spoken negatively about. The people who did these things to make sure that you didn't get ahead and work. Think about the ways that people have hurt you. Does mercy make sense in that moment? Mercy stinks. 
Mercy seems to go against our nature. Mercy seems like the opposite of what we feel like we should do. And so that's why it's so easy for us not to choose mercy. For us to choose vengeance. For us to take revenge on what people have done against us. I don't know about you, but I can think about the endless amounts of times that people have caused suffering in my life. And I'm sure I've caused it in the life of others. And it just doesn't make sense to me. Does it make sense why I should look past that? Why I should look beyond that? Why I should release them of that? But that's what we're called to do. And that's what David chooses in this moment. It has literally been hell on earth for this prisoner. He was imprisoned under the wrong circumstances. He has been arrested. He has been beaten. He has had these false charges committed against him. A trial of his peers has been pulled together. And to make this as quickly as they possibly can, they condemn him to death and they decide to make it happen in the next day. It says that after a whole night worth of beating, they bring him to this hill. They crucify him, pinning his hands and his feet against this wooden cross, and they raise him to the sky. And these very people who have falsely accused Christ, these very men who have literally twisted the words of Jesus to bring him to a place where he is literally hanging on his death, it says that they begin to look up at Jesus and to mock him. And Jesus chooses in that moment to do something that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. The scriptures tell us that Jesus cried out. He didn't just ask. He cried from the the depths of who he was. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. God became flesh and walked among us. He showed us this new way of living. He literally healed our disease and sickness. He looked beyond our self-righteousness to show mercy and grace into our life. And we chose to murder God. And even in the act of us murdering him, God chose mercy. It blows my mind. We read about the Old Testament that the flood was brought. Why? Because of the wickedness of humankind. Yet while we're murdering God, he chooses to show us mercy and continues to show us mercy. And that's the challenge of mercy. It's something that shouldn't be easy. In fact, mercy matters the most when it seems absolutely impossible. And that's David in this moment. David literally has at his grasp this man who's been trying to kill him, this man who's made his life absolutely miserable, this man who is literally suppressing the needs of the kingdom to make sure that he can fill this this petty argument that he has with David. He has him right in his grips, and yet he chooses mercy. Mercy matters most when it seems impossible. Because God wants what's truly best for us. You know, we think about oftentimes in life as we push and and tug within the way of Jesus that it doesn't make sense to us. And there's a reason why. Because deep within our nature that we have created for ourselves is this ideal of way of living. And God is showing us oftentimes the opposite type of thing. But yet it's what God desires for us that is the most healthy thing for our soul. Mercy is not just good for that person. Mercy is needed for our emotional and spiritual well-being. It, it releases us. That captive that we have created within our minds and our hearts and our souls, it is releasing that burden from our life. It's the most healthy thing for us to do. It makes complete and utter sense. And Jesus challenges us within the Gospels. 
Jesus tells a crowd of Jews that have been suppressed by Rome, he says, you know what? If a Roman soldier forces you to carry his equipment a mile, do it two miles. If he wants to take your tunic from him, give you his cloak as well. See, Jesus challenges us not to just think about mercy as this this easy thing, but as an impossible thing. And Jesus looks at us and he says, if you want to play this game of not forgiving people, just remember that God can play that game too. You don't show mercy to others, God won't show mercy to you. Mercy is challenging. It goes against the nature of who we are. It's no wonder that David was called a man after God's own heart because he did what was impossible to live in the way of God. Let's look at what happens in verse 8. It says, Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged him to some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay a hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at the piece of your robe in my hand. I cut it from the corner of the robe and did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but by my hand I will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers comes evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from my hands. What does mercy look like? It begins with words of grace. It's fascinating to me about this story that David just doesn't spare Saul's life, but when he comes out to address him, he uses the most significant words possible. He calls him my Lord, my King. He calls him my Father. This is the man who's been trying to kill him, and David is filled with grace in this moment. You see, oftentimes we want to show mercy to other people in our lives, but we want to make sure they know we showed them mercy. We want to make their life difficult as they made our life difficult. And so we might use short phrases. We might give snide remarks. We might ignore them for a while just to make sure they know that they have hurt us. But David doesn't choose to do that. Mercy shows words of grace in this moment. And not only that, but what does David do? He comes out and he lays, he prostrates himself before the king. He has the utmost respect for this man despite what this man has done. But we need to keep in mind that mercy is not just looking past what somebody's done. Mercy is actually an act of accountability. You see, David needs Saul to know that what he has done is wrong. And so he comes out and he reminds him, these things that you have done are horrible things. You're trying to kill me. You murdered these priests. This is not a good thing, Saul. Mercy is an act of accountability. It's not looking blindly past what others have done, but it's bringing up the acts that have been committed against us. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to go out and you need to bash people with the things that they've done, but you need to approach people with a sense of graceful accountability in their lives. Now, for many of us, the sphincter just went like that because we hate confrontation. We hate telling people when they have done wrong to us, and so we would rather just ignore it. We'd rather push it to the side, but that's not an act of mercy. And for many of us, we love confrontation, so we love to go tell people when they've done wrong in our lives. So this isn't a problem for us. But the way that you approach people when they've wronged you matters. 
It's an act of accountability. It's recognizing that things have been done. And this is what happens in verse 16, the, the conclusion of our text. It says, When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he not let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you have treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe my name from my father's family. So David gave an oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's fascinating what happens as a result of David's mercy. Saul is transformed by this moment. Here's a man who's literally in the act of trying to kill Saul, but he chooses to to change all that in this moment. And by David showing grace and mercy to Saul, Saul's life is immediately transformed. Saul recognizes the things that he's done wrong. He becomes accountable for the acts that he has committed, and he realizes and he apologizes to David for what he's done. The thing we need to understand about mercy is it not only transforms our lives, but it transforms the lives of others what mercy does. Think about the moments in your life that people have wronged you and the the times that you've chosen revenge or vengeance for what they have done. Think about how mercy could have changed that moment. Could have changed your life. Could have changed their lives. Think about the many times that Jesus showed mercy to other people and how they went away completely different than they were before. Remember when I said the word mercy and forgiveness are synonymous within the text? The word mercy and to forgive also means to heal. To transform. And so when we show grace to others, it's transforming their lives. It's showing them that there's a different way to live. That there's a different way to react when people wrong us. There's a different way and it comes through the mercy of God. And because it's so radical, because it's so impossible, mercy is required to have faith in God. We have to have faith in God in order to show mercy to others. Think about how difficult, how challenging it is to show grace to others. God must be a part of our lives in order to do that. And so I challenge you, if if you're struggling showing mercy to others in your life, could it be that you don't have faith in God? You don't have faith in God's abilities to work through you. You don't have faith that mercy is much better than vengeance. But faith is required. Faith is required to look at a person who has wronged us in the face and to say, I forgive you. I show mercy for you in this moment. There's a radical story I read recently. In February of uh, 1993, Lamar Bird shot... um, in the head, a man named O'Shea Israel. They got in an argument at a party when they were both in high school and he, and, uh, and he, he shot him dead. And uh, Israel was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And he served 17 years before he was released. And upon his release, Israel moved back to his neighborhood. And in fact, he moved in next door to the mother of the man that he murdered. And this is where the story gets interesting. You see, Mary Johnson was hell-bent on seeing her boy's murderer die in prison. And she said, my son was gone. I was angry and I hated this man. I hated his mother. I hated his family. The murder was like a tsunami of shock and disbelief and hatred and anger and blame. And all I wanted him to do was to be caged up like the animal he was. And after months of grieving and just, just 
feeling the imprisonment of this hatred towards this man, she, she, she went towards somebody to get help. And when she got help from this group, she decided to establish other groups that can help other people who are dealing with the loss and murder of people within their lives. And, and, and so she said, hurt is hurt. It doesn't matter what side you're on. And so after a few years of bring, being in prison, Israel received the most unexpected message. It was from Mary Johnson who wanted to come see him. And for nine months, he said, no, I'm not going to let this woman come see me. Because you can imagine what he thought was going to happen when she came in. And after nine months, he finally gave the approval. And when Mary Johnson came in, she was overwhelmed with grace. She embraced Israel and she sat down. And from that day forward, they had the most dynamic relationship. And for nine years, this happened. She would go, she would see him. She said, unforgiveness is like a cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about the other person, me forgiving him and diminishing what he's done. He murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. The mercy is for me. And upon his release, Mary Johnson worked with her landlord to make the room available for her son's murderer to live right next door to her. Mercy transforms lives. Mercy changes everything. Can you embrace the mercy that God desires for your life? But more importantly, can you let God's mercy pour over into your life to transform the lives of people who have wronged you? Let's pray together.